you are now tuned into World War II Stories. I'm your host, Steve Matthews, and I'm here to take you on a journey through the whirlwind of historical events that shaped our world and defined generations. Stay tuned every Tuesday and Thursday as we delve into the riveting, inspiring, and sometimes tragic stories from World War II. We'll meet the brave men and women who stood up to tyranny, we'll explore clandestine operations and daring escapes, and we'll pay tribute to the resilience of the human spirit in times of extreme adversity. Also, be sure to check out our other podcast focusing on World War I, the conflict that set the stage for the global turmoil that followed. Use the link in the description below. In the annals of human history, there are events so harrowing, so profoundly shocking, that they irrevocably mark the collective consciousness of our species. The Holocaust is one such event a systematic, state-sponsored genocide perpetrated by Nazi Germany during World War II that led to the extermination of six million Jews. At the heart of this monstrous machinery of destruction was a clandestine meeting of high-ranking Nazi officials at a serene lakeside villa in Wannsee, a suburb of Berlin. This narrative delves into the macabre tapestry of the Wannsee Conference, an event that irrefutably sealed the fate of millions and shaped the course of history. It is a journey through a horrifying chapter of human malevolence, a testament to the depths of depravity to which ideologies of hate can plunge societies. From the rise of the Third Reich to the shocking realities of the extermination camps, from the unfolding of the Holocaust to its aftermath and lasting legacy, we journey through the darkest corridors of the past, shining a light on the chilling decisions, the devastating consequences, and the enduring lessons. Join us on this exploration of the One C Conference, not for the satisfaction of curiosity, but to acknowledge, learn, and remember. The story of the Wannsee Conference is not just a narrative of hate, it is a reminder of our collective responsibility to prevent the recurrence of such atrocities in the future. It's an exploration of human capacity for evil, but also the enduring power of truth, justice, and memory. I am your host, Steve Matthews. Join us today as we embark on another exciting adventure. Chapter 1. Setting the Stage the rise of the Third Reich didn't happen overnight. Instead, it was a tumultuous journey that began in the ashes of the First World War, in a Germany ravaged by economic devastation, political instability, and social unrest. These factors created a breeding ground for radical ideologies, and it was in this soil that the seed of the Nazi party began to sprout. At the forefront of this movement was an unlikely figure, a wounded veteran of the First World War, Adolf Hitler. With fiery rhetoric and an uncanny ability to tap into the seething discontent and fear of the German people, Hitler quickly ascended the ranks of the Nazi party. His speeches lured the masses, promising a return to glory for the German people while subtly weaving in a sinister narrative of anti-Semitism. Hitler's ascent to power was not merely due to his charismatic speeches. It was facilitated by a cadre of devoted, ruthless followers, including men like Heinrich Himmler, Joseph Goebbels, and Hermann Göring. These men, each brilliant and devious in his own right, were instrumental in shaping the Nazi party and facilitating its rise. The Weimar Republic, struggling with economic depression and increasing civil unrest, was ill-equipped to stave off the rise of extremism. 
the Nazi party exploited the chaos, positioning themselves as the solution to Germany's woes. Slowly but surely, the party gained ground, their influence creeping into every aspect of society. The pivotal turning point came in 1933. In a desperate bid to curb the growing disorder, aging President Paul von Hindenburg appointed Hitler as Chancellor of Germany. The decision was intended to quell the political turbulence, but it was like handing the keys to a wolf at the door. Once in power, Hitler and his associates moved swiftly to solidify their hold. They orchestrated the Reichstag fire, blaming it on the communists, and used it as a pretext to pass the Enabling Act. This law effectively dissolved the German parliament and gave Hitler dictatorial powers. From there, the transformation of Germany into the Third Reich, a totalitarian state with Hitler at its helm, was only a matter of time. Laws were rewritten, dissenters were silenced, and Hitler's vision of a racially pure and dominant Germany began to take shape. Through a combination of cunning, manipulation, and ruthless power consolidation, the Nazi Party, once seen as a fringe extremist group, had ascended to the zenith of German political power. The stage was set for the atrocities that were to come. Antisemitism was not a novel concept in Europe when the Nazis ascended to power, but under their regime, it took on an unprecedented, systematic form. Hitler, fueled by a deep-seated loathing for Jews, used them as scapegoats for Germany's ills, stirring up age-old prejudices. However, the horror that was to culminate in the Holocaust didn't start with the gas chambers. It was a progressive escalation, a series of steps that started with dehumanizing laws and policies. Early on, after Hitler's rise to power in 1933, the Nazi party began passing laws aimed at isolating and marginalizing Jews in German society. Jews were removed from civil service roles, excluded from universities, and boycotted professionally. This phase of the Nazi policy can be described as one of exclusion and harassment. As years passed, this anti-Jewish policy moved into a more aggressive phase. The Nuremberg Laws of 1935 stripped Jews of their rights as German citizens, forbidding intermarriage between Jews and non-Jews. Propaganda magnate Joseph Goebbels masterfully manipulated public opinion, branding Jews as enemies of the state in films, newspapers, and radio broadcasts. The transition from discrimination to violence became apparent during the infamous Kristallnacht in November 1938. Orchestrated by Heinrich Himmler and Reinhard Heydrich, this night of broken glass saw a wave of violent attacks against Jews, leaving scores dead and thousands of Jewish businesses and synagogues in ruins. Kristallnacht was a turning point, marking the beginning of mass violence against Jews. Yet, it was not until the Wannsee Conference in 1942 that the most heinous phase of the Nazi policy towards Jews was formulated, the final solution. This euphemism referred to the extermination of all Jews in territories under Nazi control. Reinhard Heydrich, a high-ranking SS official, spearheaded this development. His comprehensive plan laid the groundwork for the systematic murder of six million Jews making the Holocaust the deadliest genocide in human history. From the early days of exclusion and discrimination to the catastrophic final solution, 
the evolution of the Nazi policy towards Jews was a progressively dreadful journey. It was a demonstration of how unchecked hatred, combined with power, can result in unspeakable horror. In the years following the instatement of the Nuremberg Laws and the horrors of Kristallnacht, the gears of the Nazis' anti-Jewish machine were in full motion. Yet, there was a lack of coherence in the policies implemented throughout the Nazi-controlled territories. Adolf Hitler, ever impatient, sought a more comprehensive and final solution to the so-called Jewish question. Enter Reinhard Heydrich, a man whose name would become synonymous with the orchestration of the Holocaust. As chief of the Reich Main Security Office, he had proven his commitment to the cause. Hitler saw in Heydrich the ruthless efficiency needed to coordinate and implement a solution that would satisfy the Führer's longing for a Jew-free Europe. Heydrich was given the task to find a final solution to the Jewish question. In the run-up to the Wannsee Conference, Heydrich had begun to consolidate his power. He convened several preliminary meetings with department heads to discuss the Jewish question, fostering an environment of collaboration. He knew the key to a smooth execution was to have all hands on deck and to ensure no one could plead ignorance later. Meanwhile, Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union in June 1941 added millions more Jews under Nazi control. The scope of the Jewish problem had dramatically expanded. Yet, within this expansion lay a twisted opportunity for the Nazis. The eastern territories, sparsely populated and with vast expanses of desolate land, presented a chilling solution, mass extermination. With this newfound territory and Hitler's impatience reaching a crescendo, the stage was set for a meeting that would seal the fate of millions. Heydrich invited representatives from all significant departments of the Nazi regime to attend a conference in a villa by the picturesque Lake Wannsee. Unbeknownst to many attendees, this gathering would be far from a typical bureaucratic meeting. On January 20th, 1942, 15 high-ranking officials of the Nazi regime arrived at the villa, unaware of the magnitude of the decision they would collectively make. What was about to transpire would put into motion a genocide of unprecedented scale. The prelude to the Wannsee Conference was over, the time for discussion and decision had come. Chapter 2 The Wannsee Conference At the heart of the Wannsee Conference were 15 men, representing the very highest echelons of Nazi power. Among them were several figures whose roles were instrumental in shaping the horrific course of events to come. Reinhard Heydrich was the conference's driving force. As head of the Reich Main Security Office and acting Reich Protector of Bohemia and Moravia, he had Hitler's trust and was poised to lead the final solution. Heydrich's ruthlessness, ambition, and calculated demeanor made him a frighteningly effective orchestrator of the Holocaust. Next to Heydrich was Adolf Eichmann, an SS Obersturmbannführer and head of the Reich Main Security Office's Jewish Department. Eichmann was the logistical mastermind behind the mass deportations to ghettos and extermination camps. His knack for bureaucratic efficiency made him an invaluable asset to the Nazis' genocidal plan. Dr. Joseph Bueller, the state secretary for the general government in Poland, was another key player. He held a significant position within occupied Poland, a country that was home to millions of Jews. Bueller, fully aware of Heydrich's intentions, 
was eager for a solution that would rid his jurisdiction of Jews. Otto Hoffman represented the SS Race and Settlement Main Office, an organization responsible for maintaining the racial purity of the SS. His role in facilitating the final solution was crucial, as his department was tasked with determining who was racially fit to live. From the Ministry of Justice came Dr. Wilhelm Stuckert, a man who had played a significant role in drafting anti-Semitic legislation, including the Nuremberg Laws. His legal expertise would be used to justify the horrifying policies that were to come. The conference was also attended by representatives from various other government departments, each playing their part in the deadly puzzle. They were drawn from the very core of the Nazi regime, spanning administrative, security, economic, and even transportation sectors. The pieces were set, the players ready. What was about to transpire within the stately rooms of the Wansi Villa would not only cement their infamous place in history but also seal the cruel fate of millions. In the cold light of January 20, 1942, the stately villa at 56 to 58 a.m. Gross in Wansi was a picture of tranquil luxury. Yet, within its grand walls, fifteen men gathered around a conference table their discussion revolving around a subject of unimaginable darkness. Reinhard Heydrich, the meeting's convener, opened the conference with a tone of unassailable authority. He explained their goal a final solution to the Jewish question. In his carefully selected words, the terrifying meaning of this phrase was left unsaid, yet the implication was clear to all present, mass extermination. In a display of chilling bureaucracy, Adolf Eichmann presented the logistics. He talked about transportation, labor, and numbers with a disconcerting detachment, as though they were discussing cargo, not human lives. He listed the number of Jews in each occupied territory, reaching a staggering total of 11 million. It was clear that the Nazis intended to leave no stone unturned in their quest to rid Europe of its Jewish population. Doctor. Joseph Bueller was eager to voice his support for the plan. He saw it as an effective solution for the problems he was facing in Poland, where ghettos were teeming with Jews. His endorsement was an omen of the horrors that Poland's Jews would soon endure. Despite the horrific nature of their discussion, the atmosphere was reportedly casual. There was no soul-searching or questioning of the morality of their decision. Instead, the conversation was steeped in practicalities, how to transport Jews from various countries, how to utilize them for labor before their deaths, and how to seize their properties. Heydrich smoothly navigated any objections, asserting his authority and making it clear that the extermination was sanctioned by Hitler himself. This was no longer a matter for debate, it was a directive that was to be followed. As the meeting concluded, the room emptied. Each attendee carried with them a monstrous secret that, once set in motion, would lead to an unparalleled human catastrophe. The conversation within the Grand Villa was over, but its echoes would resonate through the pages of history, a chilling testament to human capacity for evil. Once the doors of the Wansi Villa closed behind the departing attendees, the true impact of their decision began to take shape. The conference had transformed a hitherto chaotic and disorganized anti-Jewish policy into a systematic, bureaucratic plan for mass murder. 
Reinhard Heydrich, having asserted his authority at the conference, plunged headfirst into his assigned task. With a newfound legitimacy in bureaucratic cooperation, the machinery of the Holocaust was set into motion. Concentration camps such as Auschwitz-Birkenau and Treblinka began operating at an unthinkable scale, processing thousands of innocent lives each day. Adolf Eichmann, with his uncanny knack for logistics, coordinated the mass deportations of Jews from across Europe to these extermination camps. He orchestrated the rail networks, the schedules, and the guards, ensuring a steady influx of victims. For Eichmann, these were merely numbers. For the world, they were human lives erased in their millions. Dr. Joseph Bueller, back in Poland, saw the swift implementation of the final solution in his jurisdiction. His earlier eagerness for the plan took a horrifying form, as Jews from ghettos in Warsaw, Lublin, and Krakow were herded onto trains bound for death camps. The aftermath of the Wannsee Conference reverberated far beyond the borders of Germany, engulfing the whole of Nazi-occupied Europe. Jews from France, Netherlands, Greece, Hungary, and more found themselves entrapped in the Nazis' genocidal net. The plan born out of that fateful conference turned the entirety of Europe into a hunting ground, and its Jewish population, the prey. In the end, the final solution was executed with chilling efficiency, leading to the murder of six million Jews, two-thirds of Europe's Jewish population. The legacy of the Wannsee Conference was etched in the annals of history as a testament to the unthinkable horrors that can emerge from the corridors of power when guided by hate and prejudice. The aftermath of that day continued to resonate, a chilling reminder of humanity's darkest hour. Chapter 3 Implementing the Final Solution In the shadow of the Wannsee Conference, the machinery of the Holocaust sprung into motion. What unfolded was a grotesque marvel of administrative efficiency and bureaucratic coordination, employing every facet of the Nazi regime. The SS, under the leadership of Heinrich Himmler and overseen by Reinhard Heydrich, was the principal executioner of the final solution. Within its structure, Adolf Eichmann's Jewish department played a pivotal role. Eichmann's ability to navigate the labyrinth of logistics, his obsession with order and efficiency, became instruments of death. His department handled the systematic deportation of Jews from their homes across Europe to ghettos and extermination camps. Otto Hoffmann's SS Race and Settlement Main Office was another crucial cog in this deadly machinery. Tasked with maintaining racial purity, his department assessed the racial worthiness of individuals. His office would determine who was fit to live, a chilling authority that furthered the Nazis' genocidal intent. Meanwhile, Dr. Wilhelm Stuckert's Ministry of Justice was busy providing legal covers to the atrocities. Anti-Jewish policies, including the seizure of Jewish properties, were sanctioned under German law offering a veneer of legality to the monstrous acts of theft and murder. At the heart of the operation were the extermination camps Auschwitz-Birkenau, Sobibor, Treblinka, and others. Commanded by SS officers and guarded by Nazi soldiers, these camps were the final destination for millions of innocent lives. Their efficient, industrial-scale operation signified the horrifying intersection of technological advancement and human cruelty. Lastly, 
there was the role of ordinary Germans and officials in occupied territories. From railway workers managing transport schedules to local police rounding up Jews, the vast machinery of genocide depended on the complicity, indifference, or active participation of thousands of individuals. The implementation of the final solution revealed the terrifying potential of a state machinery, directed by fanatical ideology and unchecked power. The mechanisms set in place following the Wannsee Conference stood as a grim testament to the human capacity for organized destruction. The grand design of the Holocaust, set in motion at the Wannsee Conference, was the cumulative result of countless individual actions, decisions, and inactions. Each played a part, no matter how small, in a mosaic of horror that would consume millions of lives. Reinhard Heydrich was the chief architect, the driving force who steered the course of the final solution. His calculated approach and unwavering dedication to Hitler's vision were instrumental in the execution of the Holocaust. His relentless pursuit of racial purity shaped the policies that led to the systematic murder of millions. Adolf Eichmann, the unassuming bureaucrat, managed the logistics of death. His knack for organization translated into meticulously planned deportations, managing schedules, coordinating with various departments, and ensuring a continuous flow of victims to the death camps. He personified Hannah Arendt's phrase, the banality of evil, a man who viewed the genocide as merely a task to be completed efficiently. SS officers, such as Rudolf Haas, the commandant of Auschwitz, and Franz Stengel, the commandant of Treblinka, embodied the brutality of the regime. They oversaw the day-to-day -day operations of the death camps, their cold indifference facilitating the mass murder of thousands daily. But it was not only the high-ranking officials who played a part. Countless others, from the railway workers who operated the trains to the guards at the camps, from the clerks who maintained records to the local police who rounded up Jews in occupied territories all contributed to the machinery of death. Yet, amid the overwhelming darkness, there were sparks of humanity. Individuals like Oskar Schindler, who used his factory to save over a thousand Jews, or Jan and Antonina Zabinski, who hid Jews in the Warsaw Zoo, demonstrated the potential for individual acts of kindness and defiance in the face of monstrous inhumanity. The Holocaust was a testament to the terrifying power of individual actions fueled by hate, indifference, and fear. But it also underscored the potential for courage, empathy, and defiance against overwhelming odds. The legacy of the individual actions during this period remains a chilling reminder of humanity's capacity for both great evil and profound goodness. The shadow of the Wannsee Conference spread across Europe, plunging the continent into a nightmare of unprecedented scale. In this darkness, responses varied wildly, presenting a complex tapestry of human behavior that ranged from heroic resistance to regrettable collaboration. Within the ghettos and camps, Despite the extreme conditions, Jewish prisoners found ways to resist. In Sobobor and Treblinka, prisoners staged daring uprisings, leading to mass escapes. In Auschwitz, a group of women managed to smuggle explosives, causing significant damage to a crematorium. Small acts of defiance, like maintaining cultural and religious traditions, retaining dignity and humanity under brutal circumstances, were also forms of resistance. 
non-Jewish citizens across Europe also resisted. The Danish people, led by King Christian X, orchestrated a mass evacuation of Danish Jews to neutral Sweden, saving nearly 7,000 lives. In France, the village of Le Chambon sur Lignan harbored hundreds of Jews, defying the collaborationist Vichy regime. Individuals like Raoul Wallenberg and Chun Sujihara used their diplomatic positions to issue protective passports, saving thousands of Jews. However, alongside these stories of bravery and defiance were instances of collaboration. Some governments, like Vichy France and Hungary under Miklos Horty, cooperated with the Nazis' anti-Jewish measures. There were local police and paramilitary groups in countries like Latvia, Lithuania, and Ukraine who participated in mass shootings of Jews. Citizens across Europe betrayed their Jewish neighbors, driven by a mix of fear, anti-Semitism, or hope for personal gain. This period also saw the emergence of Judenrats, Jewish councils appointed by the Nazis to manage the ghettos. Figures like Heim Romkowski in Lodz or Mordecai Heim Romkowski in Vilnius faced impossible moral dilemmas, caught between collaborating with the Nazis in hopes of saving some, and facilitating the destruction of their own people. The legacy of resistance and collaboration during the Holocaust is a complex and emotional topic. It encompasses the full range of human potential, from the nobility of courage and altruism to the depths of cruelty and self-interest. It remains a stark reminder of the difficult choices individuals and societies can face in times of extreme crisis. In this episode, we spoke about setting the stage, the 1C conference, and implementing the final solution. I am your host, Steve Matthews. Join us in our next episode when we expand on our story and talk about the Holocaust, impact on World War II and its aftermath, and the legacy of the 1C conference.